Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. Let's give the moms a round of applause. Let's give them a thank you. Moms, we, uh, we literally would not be here without you. And so we are very grateful for you, each one of you. If you're a mom here today and you're a guest, maybe your kids brought you to church, uh, if you stop by the first-time guest tent on your way out, we've got a special gift for you. And uh, if you're a regular attender here, don't go to the first-time guest tent, but all the moms, we've got a gift for you as you're leaving today. Just our way of saying thank you, that we love you, we're grateful for you. And I bet you every mom here would affirm this statement. Kids change everything, don't they? My wife and I were talking last night uh, about our oldest daughter, and I said, that's the one who made you a mom. Can you remember your first child, those of you who have multiple kids? And uh, my wife was telling me that she was sharing with some, she works at uh, Big Wake Med as a nurse, and she said that she was talking to some of the other nurses that are newer moms there about when we had our first child and how everything changed in that moment. And there were lots of things that had happened in that pregnancy for us, uh, but when we had that first baby, we were getting ready to take her home. Can you believe they just let you take a human home from the hospital? Isn't that wild? Like I had to take a driver's test to drive a car, but you're going to give me a human. And there's not even like a pop quiz, like as you're about to get into the car. They just give them to you and you go home. At about day 10 of us being home with our new baby, my wife woke up in a pool of blood. We didn't know what to do, so we called the doctor's office. The doctor was on vacation. Uh, The ladies that were there at the office said, stay in bed, uh, drink lots of water, and if it happens again, call us back. You'll probably have to go to the hospital. So that day, uh, we took it pretty low-key. I watched some football. My wife just laid there. We ate meals. After dinner, it happened again. And so there was more blood, and we called, and they said, come up to the doctor's office. And so we met this doctor. It was not our doctor. It uh, was a, a grandfatherly guy. My wife said he probably the guy who started the practice. And uh, we met him there. He was turning the lights on. It was uh, Saturday evening. And we stood in the back of that doctor's office, and he evaluated my wife, asked her some questions, and I'll never forget this question. He said, uh, when's the last time you ate? I'm not a doctor, at least not that kind of doctor. And uh, I knew, though, that that means he's thinking about surgery. And he said, you're going to have to have surgery. And so, they took us to the hospital at that point, put a bunch of IVs into her. And then my wife said when she was telling the nurses at the hospital about this story, said, you know, you've got this child that's totally dependent on you, eats off of your body, like totally needs you for everything. And she said, and, I'm, and I can't do anything. I'm going to go into surgery. I don't even know if I'm going to make it. Who's going to take care of this baby? And I said, hey, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, you didn't have a clue. And I'm like, you're right. I didn't have a clue. She said, but in that moment, she realized how dependent somebody else was on her her identity had changed. She became a mom. But then she was totally out of, like, she didn't have control. She was totally dependent on the Lord. Many of you moms know what that's like. When you become a mom, it changes your identity, and it changes your behavior. Think about it, moms. How many of you, before you had kids, could do everything in your life with one hand, and it wasn't your primary hand? Because you used to hold the baby here, and you can do everything else over there. That's pretty, your identity changed your behavior. Or this is kind of a gross one that I was thinking about this week, but this is true, so I'm going to say it. What other human on earth, when they hear someone about to throw up, sticks their hands out to catch it? I got it. I got it. That's a mom. Moms do that because they're a mom. They have this different behavior that they have. Or, or moms have a unique counting system. I was writing a sermon a couple weeks ago, and I was at a park, and I heard another mom, doesn't go to this church to my knowledge, and she said, five, four, 
three, and she gets to one. She says, Don't make me say one. Isn't that a unique mom counting system that you have there? And so moms, you have a, a unique identity, and with that comes unique behavior because your kids have changed everything. We're doing a sermon series here, as you saw from the video, and you can see from the logo behind me, it's about how Jesus changes everything. We're going through the book of Colossians. Last week, we left off on a passage of Scripture. We talked about how Jesus changes our identity, and our identity needs to align with our behavior. And we just ran out of time last week, and so we're going to pick up on that passage again this week. It's in Colossians chapter 2, and I've titled today's message, Jesus Changes Your Identity. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the identity changes that Jesus does when you trust Christ as your Savior. And then we've got to look at our own lives and ask, has our behavior changed with that identity? So, if you've got your Bible, Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Lord willing, we're going to get into uh, chapter 3 today. If you haven't been with us, as we've been doing this series talking about Jesus changing everything, we started off with a transformational prayer. And we talked about how Paul was praying that you would know God's will. Why? Because God's done an amazing work where He's transferred you from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, and then talked about who His Son is. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the church. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who's worthy of our faith, amen? And when you place your faith in Him, then He wants to grow you in that faith to a thing He calls maturity. And some moms are familiar with maturity too, right? You deal with lots of immaturity, and some of you have gotten to the point where your kids are now at least quasi-mature. I see some semi-grown children here with your kids today. And uh, you know what that's like, but it's a difficult process. And Paul, when he was writing this book, uses his ministry as the model for maturity. He says, get to the place where you can rejoice in your suffering, where you repeat the gospel regularly, where you can live on mission as a family with other believers. That's what the church is supposed to be like, together. But you got to keep going because some people fade away. And so he says, keep walking. You keep walking in the faith. And the way that you do that is you've got to acknowledge, see the dangers of deception that are out there. And you've got a new identity, and maturity is when your identity and and the implications of that identity align with one another. And so he's just talked through that, and he's talked about the identity statements, and then look what he says in verse 16. Therefore, so that word always ties back to what came right before it. Therefore, anytime you're studying the Bible, you start with therefore, you've got to know what came before it. So he just talked about identity. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, different dates on the calendar. These are a shadow, interesting word, you might underline that, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so there's the contrast, shadow and substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify, so sports term, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, Jesus is the head, He's the head of the church, we've already read that, to the head from whom the whole body, that's the body of Christ, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and it grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elements of this elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? And he gives examples. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And the little commentary, verse 22, referring to the things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't help you align your identity. The therefore in verse 16 tied us back to what Paul had just said, and he had just been talking about you've been given a new identity. If, this is a huge if by the way, 
if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you have not, I'll tell you how you can do that at the end of the service, but if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're alive in Christ. And so that means that, that Jesus, we sang this song over and over where our lives are hid in Christ. That means that, that Jesus' life is what God sees when He looks at us now because we're in Christ. Amen? Amen. Isn't that incredible truth? It says uh, in chapter 2 when we were reading that, that you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach. Now, we know in our practice we're not, but because of what Christ has done for us, that's how God chooses to see us. Amen? It's like I was reading a story the other day, a guy named Lincoln Hall. I don't know if you're familiar with climbing uh, or any of that, but the, in the climbing world, Everest is a, a well-known summit that many people want to get to. And Lincoln Hall had climbed Everest, actually reached the summit, but then on his descent, about 1,000 uh, feet from the, the peak, at about 28,000 feet, he got altitude sickness. He began to hallucinate, and the Sherpas that were there guiding him couldn't get him to come down the mountain. And so they left him there. Reportedly, after hours of trying to help him uh, to get down, the, their leader said, you need to leave him there because he's going to die, and to save your own lives, you come back to the base. And so they left. They came back to the base. They reported to the media, to his friends, to his family that he died on the mountain. However, 12 hours after the reports went out that he was dead, there was another group that was making the ascent to the summit, and about 1,000 feet before they got there, they found Lincoln Hall. And, and I could tell you what they said, but I want to read it to you because it's so unbelievable. You guys are going to think I made this up. Here's the quote from the team that found this guy. They said, sitting to our left about two feet from a 10,000-foot drop was a man, not dead, not sleeping, but sitting cross-legged in the process of changing his shirt. Who's on the top of Mount Everest going, you know what? It's kind of hot up here. In the process of changing his shirt. He had his down suit unzipped to the waist, his arms out of the sleeves, was wearing no hat, no gloves, no sunglasses, had no oxygen masks, regulator, ice axe, oxygen, no sleeping bag, no mattress, no food or bottle of water. Here's a quote from him. I imagine you're surprised to see me here, he said. <laughs> yeah, you think? Now, this was a moment of total disbelief to us all. Here was a gentleman, apparently lucid who had spent the night without oxygen at 8,600 meters, that's 28,000 feet, without proper equipment and barely clothed and alive. Here's the irony of the story. A few days earlier, there was a guy named David Sharp. You can look him up, find him on Wikipedia or wherever. David Sharp had a similar experience, 1,000 feet from the summit. Dozens of people saw him, but they didn't want to sacrifice the glory of making it to the summit of Everest, and so he died. Lincoln Hall survived because this team stopped. The leader of this team said, the summit will be there. This guy only has one life. They saved his life. Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to earth and did not live a remarkable life, did not live a life that we follow of a moral teacher. He lived a sinless life so that being fully God and fully man, in Him the fullness of God dwells, we've read in Colossians. He's fully God and fully man, so that when He goes to the cross, He can die in your place. He's the substitute at the cross. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, who left the glory of heaven to die for your sins, then you've been made alive in Christ. Amen? And then the passage said last week that you're also forgiven in Christ. We're going to talk more about that next week. When Paul puts that into application as we talk about relationships, but here he's tying back to the freedom that we have in Christ. 
It was in chapter 2 and verse 15. If you've got a copy of the Bible, you might go back and read it, where he had talked about this freedom. He talks about Jesus. He said, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He gave you freedom. So then live free. Our first point is simply this. You are free in Christ. So don't be trapped. So don't be trapped. You see, your identity has implications. The way we talked about it last week was your belief needs to line up with your behavior. Your position in Christ needs to line up with your practice if you're going to be mature. And and we talked about it like an alignment, kind of like a car has alignment. If you're driving down the road with the steering wheel turned to the right, but the car's going straight, and you turn the steering wheel straight, and you turn to the left, there's a problem. I'm not a mechanic, but I've had this happen before. It's not good, and you have to pay somebody to fix it. There's something wrong. And what Paul's saying here is, you have an identity in Christ, it's freedom, but what he said in verses 16 through 23 is, it's possible for you to have freedom given to you, have a position of freedom, but to not live in the practice of freedom. To have the belief that you're free in Christ, but by your behavior to go back to bondage. To have the identity of being free in Christ, but not to live out the implications of that. And he goes through and he says in this passage, the implications that we can then live by are instead going back to an old way of life. And he talked about rules and legalism. Don't touch, don't taste, certain days that you have to observe, these expectations that people have. Some of you have grown up in what you would consider a legalistic background. And so you know that your spirituality was measured more by the, the length of your dress or the words that you would use or what liquids you would drink. If they're too fermented, you're not a good Christian. They don't read that Jesus made some incredible wine. But somehow, there are these man-made rules that are out there that make you right with God. Here's the problem with that. The Bible has a lot of commands. Rules aren't bad. But when you're obeying rules, in order to get God to love you, that's a significant problem. That's bondage. That has the appearance of wisdom, this passage says, but is actually bondage. Or asceticism, probably not as popular, but asceticism is essentially self-denial. Well, the problem is Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. But when you're denying yourself to somehow prove something about your spirituality or to get God to love you more, that's a problem that leads to bondage. Or mysticism, it talks about visions of angels here. There's somebody telling you you've got to have this unique, deeper experience with God in order to truly know God. What that actually does is puts the focus on you and off of Christ. They derail you from Jesus and lead you to bondage. And Paul may not have listed every possibility here, but I've thought about our church and the things that people struggle with and thinking even specifically today being Mother's Day. Moms, think about all the expectations that are out there for you. Some you put on yourself. Some other people put on you. Is that what Jesus has for you? If not, it's taking you away from Christ and leading you to… He's given you freedom, but you're choosing to live in bondage. Other people's opinions, circumstances, like we could list all the things that we experience in life, and all of them would still apply to what Paul's talking about here in verses 16 through 23, saying, you've been given freedom, so don't go back. Therefore, verse 16, tie him back to verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Remember we talked last week how this is a a picture of a Roman triumph where a general would have a military victory. And because of that military victory would then come into his town and show all that had been won, the defeated enemy. And what we have is a defeated enemy. You have victory because of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Your position in Christ is not one where you're fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory because Jesus won the victory at the cross. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's gone. Sin, where's your sting? It's gone. And so we battle sin, but the victory's already been won by Jesus. Amen? Because if it depended upon us, we'd be in a lot of trouble. And so what Paul's saying in this passage is, don't go back. But that's a temptation. Probably the picture of freedom in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is when the Israelites have been held in bondage. In fact, in the Old King James Bible, uh, Egypt was referred to as the house of bondage. They had been held in bondage to Egypt for 400 years. Let that process for a second. 400 years. Multiple generations of people crying out for God to set them free. Some of you have been in Sunday school, gone to church before. You've heard the story of the parting of the Red Sea. Do you know what the Israelites said right before the sea was going to be parted? Do you know what they said to Moses at that moment? It's unbelievable, actually. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 12. We'll put it on the screen. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 12 says this. They're speaking to Moses. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. No, that's not what you said. You've been crying out for freedom for 400 years. And now they're at a tough moment, and they're going, we want to go back to what we know, bondage. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? Do you know what happens after they get out? They keep complaining. God provides miraculous food for them, manna from heaven. Listen, there's a reason why there are diets that say not to eat any bread, because bread is good. And so I'm going to imagine if God makes you some bread, it's good bread. Makes magic bread from heaven. And you know what the people say? Listen to what the people say. Now, the rabble, I love that description. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. So, we've all wanted, you know, barbecue and pickles before, or whatever. The people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. You were being beaten every day, but okay, it cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions. We had onions. We'll go back to bondage if we can just have some onions. It's nonsense, but we all do it. We go back to what we know. If you've worked, and I know several of you have worked with addiction ministry, I see some of our leaders here from Celebrate Recovery. Uh, that's not just drug addictions, by the way. That's every hurt, habit, and hang up. It can be codependency, materialism, drug addictions. We've had some people in our church that have come to Christ from heroin addictions. I was reading this week about a guy, his name was Justin who had come out of a heroin addiction, and he had a strong testimony because he hadn't had a, a relapse. He had been sober for 10 years. That's significant. But when he gets asked by people, how come you haven't gone back to heroin? He says, because Jesus is better, which sounds like a churchy answer. But then he said, he said, because if you think about it, heroin, it only numbs you from your sin. Jesus actually forgives you of your sin. He said, heroin, it provides a, a temporary euphoria, but Jesus provides eternal pleasure. He said, and what always happened when I would do heroin is it would be a few hours and then I would feel worse afterwards. But with Jesus, I grow in joy as I learn more about my freedom, more about my forgiveness, more about my Savior. Amen? Amen. And so, what has to happen for us to walk in freedom is what Paul tells us next in this passage is to set our minds on Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3. It says, if you then have been raised with Christ… And so, there's your position. You've been raised with Christ. 
Now, here's your practice. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here's the practice. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. Why? Position. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Set your minds on things above. What's above? We'll go back to verse 1. It was Christ. Set your mind on Christ. Who is Christ? Well, Paul's been describing Him through this book. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the only one that defeats death, never to die again. Amen? He's risen. If you're new to our church and you started coming on Easter, we might do this every week, just so you know, because it's amazing news. In fact, I jotted down some things about our Savior to help you focus on Him today. Here's some things the Bible says about Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is Lord. He's Emmanuel, God with us, the Christ, the Master, the Lord, the Word, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Bread of Life, the Living Water, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Light of the World. I'm only halfway through my list. You all getting this? Anybody? I feel bad for you if you're an A-type and you're taking notes. Listen, just listen. He is our advocate. Amen? Anybody here need an advocate? I do. He's our authority. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the Prince of Peace the Almighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the True Vine, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Door, my Savior, my Redeemer, our Hope, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. He's a lion and a lamb. Isn't that incredible? He's the Great I Am, my High Priest, the Good Shepherd, the Resurrection, and the Life. Amen? Here's some things that it means about us. This is what it says about you in Christ in the Bible. These are just some. The the list of who Jesus is could go longer too. You are complete in Christ. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. You are righteous. You are forgiven. You are holy. You are adopted. You are above reproach. You are blameless. You are loved. You are blessed. You are capable. You are light. You are called, victorious, chosen, born again, alive, child of God, commissioned, member of a family, sealed, saved, redeemed, raised up, and rescued. Amen? Isn't Jesus awesome? Yeah. And He's given you freedom, so don't go back to the bondage. Whether that bondage is man-made expectations, whether that bondage is your circumstances, you think your life's defined by the things around you, whether that's other people's opinions, whether it's a legalism, an asceticism, a mysticism, what you need is Christ. And anything that takes you away from Christ robs you. The passage actually uses the word disqualified. Did you see that, verse 18? Let no one disqualify. It said, let no one judge you. How in the world can you do that? You can't control what anybody thinks. I can't control what you think about me right now, but I can control whether what you think about me controls me. Amen? Let no one disqualify you. That's the word for rob. No one steal from you the freedom that Jesus has given you. It's like, uh, I know cryptocurrency is pretty big right now. I don't know if any of you stayed up last night to watch Saturday Night Live. Um, Elon Musk was supposed to talk about Dogecoin and make everybody who had bought Dogecoin rich. And so if you uh, bought Dogecoin, please uh, drop a little something in the offering plate on your way out. (laughs) But there was another story about cryptocurrency. It happened about two weeks ago. There was a guy that started an exchange in Turkey, and he was the CEO of this exchange. He's missing now. No one can find him. And he took apparently approximately $2 billion with him. 
impacted about 400,000 people. Think about that, 400,000 people getting robbed at once? How many Christians do you think have been robbed of the freedom they have in Christ because they've gotten distracted from who Jesus is? You are free, believer. Do not, do not get trapped. And so, what do we do? Well, the passage goes on to say even more. It said here, we read already, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. You're dead to sin, so be killing your sin. That's our second point. Positionally, you are dead to sin. Did you know that? Like many Christians know that Jesus died for our sin, but did you realize that Jesus died for your sin so you can die to your sin? It says, you are dead. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. You died to your sin, so be killing your sin. The Puritan, John Owen, said it like this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The way that Paul says it here is verse 5 in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, there's that word again, therefore, in light of what we just read, you died to sin, verse 4, or verse 3, it says, therefore, in verse 5, put it to death. What is earthly in you? And then he gives this list. There's two lists in this passage. The first one is this, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he defines as idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's the New Testament. In these, you too once walked. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then here's another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's a problem many of us will have when we read this passage of Scripture, especially if you grew up with a legalistic background, is that you read this and you go, there's the naughty list. There's all the bad things not to do. Anger, malice, sexual morality, lust. They are bad lists. But don't forget what we just read. Don't go into bondage to legalism. So, is Paul then going to give us a, a list of all the do not do these things, and if you're going to be good with God, you've got to do this stuff? Don't miss the beauty of what Paul has written in this passage of Scripture and the book as a whole. He spent two chapters telling us truth about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. He told us all those things. That's what, what grammar people will call the indicatives. The indicatives are truth statements. The commands are called imperatives. The imperatives are what we're supposed to do. Here's something you need to notice about the Bible, and you can see it. It's not just in Colossians. This is throughout the Bible. The indicatives actually fuel the imperatives. The truth statements actually fuel the things that we're supposed to do. What we're talking about here with our identity lining up with our, our behavior is all throughout the Bible. So we were given the indicative in verse 3, Colossians chapter 3, in verse 3, here's the truth statement. It says that you died. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's an incredible truth. You didn't have to do anything for that. Amen? In light of what's true about you, imperative, Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Jesus died for you, and then we died, and then we talked about last week, baptism. That's just symbolic of what is already true, that we've died to an old way of life. We're raised to walk in a new way of life. Here we're told to kill the sin, which notice that language in verse 5. Your issue with sin is not a renovation project, okay? So I know some of you like HGTV. What you're doing in your life is not some self-improvement project where we're making a better version of the old you. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. This is new construction. The old way is dead, but here's the problem. I know y'all are Christians, so I'm, I'm debating about this analogy. 
Let's pretend like a couple of you watched a horror movie before, all right? You ever watch a movie where the bad guy gets killed, but he keeps coming back? It's like you shoot him, and poof, and well, he got shot in the shoulder, and now he's hugging his wife, and the bad guy's in the background again. Ooh, so poof, you shoot him in the head, and he dies. But then next week, there's a sequel, and the bad guy's in it. And the bad guy keeps coming back over and over and over again. Cancer, or our sins like cancer, that you don't mess with it. You don't feed it. You don't just keep it off to the side and hopefully it doesn't do any damage. You're supposed to kill it. It's decisive and immediate. That's why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to lust, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not being literal in that passage, just so you know. There was a church father who tried that. His name was Origen. Uh, you can read about him. He castrated himself. And then you know what he said afterwards? That didn't work. Because lust is a heart issue. And so is greed. And so is immorality. They're heart issues. So you've got to do heart work. And the hard work is, is you've got to be killing the sin, or the sin will be killing you. And so Paul gives these lists here in this passage, and he's saying, he's saying if you're going to do verses 1 through 4, then you can't be living in these lists of verses 5 through 10. It's like, I remember when I was a kid, I was about 10 or 11 years old, there was a story that captured the nation. This happens every once in a while. And so, Many of you are younger than me, and so you might not remember this story, but you might remember 9-11, or you might remember um, the Columbine shooting, or you might remember the shooting in a church shooting in Charleston, where it's like everything stops in the nation, right? And everybody's watching the news. When I was a kid, about 10 or 11 years old, uh, there was a a baby, baby Jessica, for those of you who might remember that time frame. It's an 18-month-old little girl who was playing out in the backyard and she fell down a well. Her mom said that she went to uh, get a phone call, was away for about five minutes. She came back. Her daughter wasn't there in the backyard. And they found that she had fallen in an eight-inch hole. Think about how small that is, an eight-inch hole. And she had fallen 22 feet down. And they couldn't get to her. They didn't know how to get to her without the well collapsing on her. And so the news showed up, local news, and then eventually the national news. It was all over the news. And And this happened in Texas. I grew up in Michigan. We were watching it in Michigan. People were watching it from all over the country. And people had ideas. They were sending in ideas. They were calling. This is before, like, texting and email. I know. It's crazy. I'm so old. I rode a dinosaur to school. I get it. But people were sending in all this information, trying to help. One guy volunteered. He was a roofer. He said, I don't have any collarbones. This is crazy. He said, I'll slide down in there. They thought about it, but they didn't use him. What they did is they dug a parallel tunnel next to her. And they went two feet past that and dug underneath it and came up underneath her, underneath her and then pushed her up through that, that area with a paramedic and took her out, and she survived. And uh, what many people don't know, and this is before GoFundMe, is that they had people that were watching this from all over the country had started a trust fund for her so that when she was 25 years old, she'd receive $800,000. And so this was more than 25 years ago now, and how, how I think it was, I don't know, she's about 25 years old. I don't know what she did with the money, but just imagine with me. Imagine you were the paramedic that rescued her, and then you found out that baby Jessica took her $800,000 as a 25-year-old and decided to dig a tunnel so that she could live underground. How would you feel? What Paul's saying in this passage, believer, is that you died to this old way of life. You don't go back and live that way of life. Set your minds on things above. Let me read you a couple verses that are outside of Colossians about your position in Christ, believer in Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So, your, your home is not this earth. But when you live according to the list that we're just given here, it's evidence that you're living according to this earth, whether it's sexual immorality or anger or malice. Your eyes aren't on the Savior. Your eyes are on this world. And, and there's some sins that we need to battle. Specifically, I think you can categorize these two lists of sins by two categories. The first one is discontentment. And look back at the list with me because you might look at it and think, how could you say that's discontentment, Scott? Well, look at it. You can disagree with me. That's totally fine. You can talk about that in your small groups. I'm sure you do whether I give you permission or not. <laughs> but Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and listen to this list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I think that what Paul's doing here is he's giving us a list of sins that go from very specific to very general, and then the last one's a summary of the whole thing. And so, you look at the list, sexual immorality. That's pretty clearly defined in the Bible. I know that we get funny about it as a culture. Sexual immorality in the Bible is any, 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 underline that, any sin outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. So, that means even if you were married before and you're a widow, you're not the exception. I've had people in my office tell me that's the exception. I've had young married couples, two 25-year-old, fully healthy couples say, we live in the same house, but we don't. I'm like, am I a moron? Like, that's sin. The widows are sin. Some of you here think, well, but God's cool with homosexuality, not according to the Bible. So, you may say that, but you're contradicting God and His Word. Sexual morality is any sexual behavior outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Here's the deal. God created sex. It's incredible. You should do it if you're married. But outside of that, it's called sexual morality. But then he goes on. Impurity. So, it gets more general. It's just moral impurity. Or passion. Passion's not wrong. And here in this context, he's talking about an evil passion. Some translations call it lust evil desire, and then covetousness. That's wanting something that doesn't belong to you. It could be your neighbor's wife, could be your neighbor's life, could be his career, but then it gets defined, which is idolatry. See, all these things are God issues. Your greatest problem in your life is not a food problem, it's not a career problem, it's a God problem, it's a worship problem. The Israelites, when they were in the wilderness and they wanted onions, wasn't because the menu was bad. They were discontent with God. The issues in your life are not the circumstances, not the other people. It's a worship issue. And I think today, one of the things that can happen, I think specifically is even talk to some of the moms, because I've talked to people that have experienced this, multiple, is that you see what other people are doing in their lives, and you compare yourself to that, and you think that's what you need to do. And so, social media kills us in this, right? Like Instagram, Facebook, you pull it out, your mom, and it's first day of school, and you look and you see somebody's kid who's like a first grader, has a bow in their hair, and their shirt is ironed, and you can't get your kids to get out of their pajamas. So, you compare yourself. Or you see some mom in there, she's like a lawyer, and she's got 10 kids, and she takes them all to practice after she's done practicing law, and then makes a gourmet meal somewhere in between that, and there's all the pictures on there, and you're like, I took a shower. <laughs> Felt like I did something today. And so, you compare yourself. I think what Jesus would say to you is the same thing He says to Peter when Peter starts to compare himself to one of the other disciples. 
One of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament is John chapter 21. Uh, Jesus has just restored Peter. The passage just oozes grace. And Peter denied Jesus three times, and so Jesus restores him by asking him the same question three times, do you love me? And then every time Peter says back, you know that I love you, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus says in essence this, then I'm going to trust you again, and I want you to take care of my people. The way he says it in the Bible is, then feed my sheep. And then when that's done, Jesus says to Peter, here's my plan for the rest of your life, and here's how you're going to die. You're going to die a martyr. You're going to be crucified. Can you imagine if God actually told you what's going to happen for the rest of your life? Like a bunch of us would be like, no, I'm good. I'd like something else. But he tells Peter, he tells Peter, this is what's going to happen. Like, here's how your life's going right now. Here's how it's going to go. Here's how you're going to die. And then Peter, they're walking along the Sea of Galilee. He hears John, one of his buddies, walking behind him. He goes, well, what about him? What are you going to do with his life? <laughs> We would all do that, wouldn't we? Listen to what Jesus says to Peter when he asked that question. John chapter 21, verse will be on the screen, verses 21 and 22. It says, when Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? If I have a different calling on his life than I have on your life, why does that impact your calling, Peter? So what's the advice? you follow me. Keep your eyes on me. And it's interesting, if you go back a couple verses, the exact same thing that Jesus told Peter before John became involved in this whole process. Go back to verse 19. He said this. Uh, in verse 19, he said, this he said to show Peter, he just told him what kind of death he's going to die. And then after the parentheses, look what he says. He says, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What are we told by the author of Hebrews in order to deal with sin in our lives? Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Remember earlier in Peter's life, some of these lessons we need to be told multiple times, right? Because we don't get it. Peter, he, he's in the storm. He's walking on water. He's doing something nobody else has ever done. But he takes his eyes off Jesus. Keep your eyes on Christ. What does it say in this passage? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Set your minds on things above. Who's above? Christ is the one that's seated above. God has a calling for each one of your lives Keep your eyes on Jesus, and He'll bring you into that calling, step by step. You don't need to worry about what my calling is, what somebody else's calling is. You keep walking with Jesus, amen? That's how you battle discontentment. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 4, if you want to learn more about discontentment, where he says, I've learned what it is to have plenty. He knows what it's like to live in a palace. But when he's writing Philippians, he's living in prison. He goes, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to go without. And I know the secret to contentment. And you know what he goes on in that passage to say it is? Christ. Jesus is the answer if you don't know, by the way. The next one, I think, is dishonest living, or you could call it hypocrisy. When you look at this list, um, it's all relational, it's all with the tongue, and I think it's also summarized at the end. Look at what it says in Colossians 3, verses 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, these are all relational, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then it says this, interesting, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Don't lie, he's truth. And I think what it's talking about here is a life of deception, which the Bible calls hypocrisy. You see, what God wants to do in your life is to transform your life from the inside out. Hypocrisy is when we live from the outside in. That we think if we clean up the outside of our behavior, it's somehow going to change our hearts. That doesn't work. Jesus confronts that with the Pharisees. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside is filth. 
On the outside, you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, it looks beautiful, but on the inside, it's dead bones. So if you've been made alive in Christ, huge if, if you've been made alive in Christ, then what happens is what's genuinely transforming as you're battling sin, as you're walking in authenticity, you're, that's coming out to the outside. But if you try to clean up the outside, you're lying. The classic story of this in the Bible is in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. If you know that story, uh, maybe you grew up in Sunday school, you know, a flannel graph version of that story where there were a bunch of people that were selling their property and they were giving the money to the apostles of the church and they were distributing it. Nobody had need. There was a guy named Barnabas who had sold and given 100% of the money to the church. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like Barnabas and so they sold some property and they gave money to the church. They claimed it was all the money, but it wasn't all the money. Here's the deal. The Bible didn't say they had to give all the money, but they wanted to look a certain way. So they gave the money and they died. Peter said, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? And they died. The point of that story, in spite of what you may have been taught, is not if you lie, you die. If so, this church would be a lot less people, just so you know, including the preacher. The point of the story is you can't deceive God. And so you might be able to fake us out about what's going on in your heart, but you can't fake Him out. And what, what many of us need is what my wife needed when we had that first child, surgery, because something's wrong on the inside. And God does that kind of surgery, and it leads to authentic living where we align our identity, where we're walking in freedom. Amen? Where there's a contentment because the contentment comes from Christ. So let's pray that He would do that in us. Father, we come before You today grateful that You, you care about us, moms, dads, singles, kids, everybody here. And Father, I pray for our moms. There is a, a, a significant pressure for them. Um, to uh, conform to some uh, whatever rules that we come up with that is, makes a great mom. And Father, I pray that You would give them the boldness and the courage to walk in the calling You have individually for each one of them. And Father, I pray for those that are here that may have heard this message that don't know Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be the moment of salvation for them. I pray that they would move from being unresponsive to You, what the Bible calls dead to You, and that you'd make them alive, that you would do a work right now in this very moment as I pray, whether they're watching online or whether they're in this room. And that, Father, I pray that they would confess their sins before you and they would ask your son, Jesus Christ, to be their Savior right now in this moment. This can be the moment of salvation for you. They're not magical words you have to pray. You just acknowledge your sin and ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If you believe he died for your sins, rose from the dead, and can offer you forgiveness, then ask for that right now. He'll become your Savior. And if you do, would you let us know so we can help you grow in that relationship? There'll be a number on the screen, if you're watching online and in this room, that you can text the word Jesus to. We'd love to help you grow in a relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray for those of us who know you, that I pray that as we leave today, we would know you a little bit more than we knew you before we came in. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.